Welcome back to the New New Englanders. I'm Sarah. And I'm Connor. And we're here to share some of New England's best music, arts, and subcultures with you. In this episode, we got to speak to Pink Navel about their upcoming record, among other things. But first, it's time for us to get to the news. New news with the New New Englanders. So I'd like to start today's episode with a quick update about a story we covered in the past. This is the Kingston, Massachusetts man who allegedly was placing large rocks on the road outside of his house, specifically for the purpose of seeing cars collide with them for whatever reason. (laughs) So this suspect was arraigned and then released on $1,500 bail. Uh, He faces at least 20 charges, which include malicious damage to a vehicle and the attempt to commit a crime. As of this moment, this suspect is still pleading not guilty to these charges. But the reason that I bring this story up again is because of a small revelation that was given to us by this one article. And it's just that this suspect, for his day job, works on a road lining crew, aka the people that paint the markings on streets. What? There's something about that detail and the fact that his job is partially like road safety that just makes this whole thing more insane. Oh my God. Oh my God. He really hates drivers, I guess. You'd think that like he wouldn't even want to be near a car after getting home from being on the road all day, working on the roads from a car. But he gets home and the first thing he does, allegedly, is booby trap the roads outside of his house. A couple more details. So Austin Mayette, who's one of these drivers that hit a boulder while he was driving down this road, said that the the rock was about a foot by a foot tall and then described the damage as shattered my oil pan, lost all my fluids. Both my airbags (laughs) went off, shattered my windshield, gave me a concussion. Oh, no. I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be laughing, but it's like. This is just deranged. <laughs> like, I, don't... I find it insane that he's pleading not guilty. Like they, yeah, I mean, the cops followed you back to your house. Just absurd. Just every detail makes us more insane. <laughs> One more detail I'd like to add is we talked about how there was a stakeout and full camouflage yes. in the woods to catch this guy. It was also pouring rain when this happened. <laughs> so they were just they were just laid out in ghillie suits on the side of this road <laughs> trying to find this dude in the pouring rain and that didn't stop him he went <laughs> he just did it again <laughs> oh my god that's crazy we'll, we'll keep a close eye on this story from here on out we'll see we'll have to continuously check in <laughs> all right what's next i have a story from bangor maine this week that's quite wholesome so in this story it's about a woman and her son who live in Bangor, who want to own chickens, but the city slash town has a law against people in the town owning chickens. These chickens are considered emotional support chickens, and he has six of them. And so they ended up bringing this as like an appeal to the city to be like, can you please keep these chickens? And at first when I was looking at this, I was like, this is going to be some like punks that are like in their 20s that are just trying to like have chickens, which is so fair because I would do the same thing. But it's not. It's a mother and her son. Her son's 25, but her son has mental and physical disabilities. He's born completely blind uh, with a cleft palate and lip, uh, missing one third of his brain and half of his right lung. And his heart is on the right side of his chest rather than the left. 
and he also has autism, epilepsy, and ADHD. So as I'm reading this, I'm like, they better let this guy keep his goddamn chickens. Let him have some chickens. Like, come on, right? Come on. Um, but they, so they so they do, they do. And the whole thing was like during COVID, he had no one to interact with and like socially withdrawn, whatever. So his mom got him these chickens, and they've made him feel like happy and you know whatever. And most of the people, so this was like a town hearing, so they have kind of like a jury type of situation. And most of the people were like totally fine with this. They were like, we wouldn't have even known that they had the chickens if this wasn't brought here. They're not like a disturbance or anything. But two people, two people didn't want them to have the chickens. And it's not that they didn't want them specifically to have the chickens, but they claimed that the chickens were bringing rats into the town that these six chickens what in this hell? one person's <laughs> property were bringing rats into the town. And also they didn't want this to cause other people to get chickens. And that's the interesting part of this whole thing is that this is an allowance literally only for this family. No one else in the town is allowed to get chickens. Only they are, which I think is kind of sick. I think this is a special case. And 100%. I don't really see where these other people are coming from. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. And the, the guy who was like the lead of the board or whatever was like, well, there were rats in other parts of the town where there aren't chickens. So your point doesn't make any sense. I think that these people just don't want this person to feel joy. These people are like the dude from that Norman Rockwell painting who's standing up at the town hall to say that they shouldn't <laughs> rebuild the school that burned down. Yeah. Incredibly unpopular position to be in. Like, let this Yeah, it's like literally let chicken. them have chickens. They're not causing a problem. My only question is how did they land on chickens as the ideal pet for this person? I, I guess I don't see chickens as an emotionally supportive animal. I don't know. I must be. I'm probably wrong. Okay, so this says that his name's CJ. His medical specialist prescribed him an emotional support animal and noted chickens may be a good match based on his specific combination of conditions. For example, the chicken chatter noises allow him to know where the chickens are, and chickens aren't easily startled by CJ's self-stimulating behaviors like flapping his hands or spinning in circles. So, like, they're not, like, an animal that's going to run away from you if you do something jarring around them. And this also says they're generally calming and easy to care for, which helps CJ create a routine that's satisfying, comforting, and enjoyable without being overwhelming. And I think that that's true. Chickens are very easy to care for, and they're just little guys. Okay, so clearly it took a lot of thought and uh, effort to land on chickens as the right yeah. candidate. Health professionals, I would hope, have like kind of a list of animals that would be good as like emotional support animals. So I guess chickens have been emotional support animals before. Yeah. I would be afraid to like get clawed by one, though, especially like he's blind. Like that would be stressful for me. Like thinking about that is like stressful me but i guess if you don't make them mad they won't try to claw you they don't really try i guess they're not really aggressive they don't really try to do that anyway but holding them can hurt <laughs> <laughs> i'm speaking from experience well we can only wish for the best for cj and his chickens no yeah i mean it seems like it's going well they've had him for a while now anyway that's a wholesome story from maine what do you got connor yeah so i actually have another transit related story this time <laughs> from connecticut this isn't a recent story. This is something that's been ongoing now for months, maybe even years, but it just felt like the right moment to bring it up. We were just talking about this between ourselves. So in Connecticut, there are so many streetlights, specifically the lights over highways that are turning purple. 
This is something that is a hot topic amongst the people of Connecticut. Yes. And I've got some of the details as to why it's happening. So the Department of Transportation in Connecticut made the decision to switch over all of the current roadway lights to energy efficient LEDs, which use about 50% less electricity than what they had been using previously. However, the company that manufactured the lights that they voted to switch to, which is Acuity Brands, they installed all these lights a couple years ago, but after a period of about two to three years, they have some malfunction go on where they end up turning purple. As someone who's driven around Connecticut at night a decent amount, there are entire stretches of highway that are literally just purple. I like it. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's honestly so fun. <laughs> it's, you feel like you're in like Tron or something. <laughs> so I wish that they would keep it. But unfortunately, they're going back and fixing these one by one. No, really? Yeah. They're not even they're not actually causing a problem, though. Like they light fine. I know. I know. I think that they should leave it. The funny thing is that. It's a rolling process because the more of them they replace, the more of the 5,000 lights that they install that this is going to happen to <laughs> continue turning purple. <laughs> so there's always different stretches of the road that are getting purpled at different moments. <laughs> Hopefully continue to have purple highways in Connecticut for the foreseeable future. Eventually they're going to figure it out and <laughs> get rid of all of them. Just know that it's not going away anytime soon. <laughs> if you are one of the people who enjoy the purple highways, which we both are. Yeah. And if you don't, like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, you mu you just, like, hate fun. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's nothing wrong with them being purple, literally at all. They're <laughs> like, just as bright. They're just purple. If anything, they, like, help you, like, stay awake better when you're driving super late. Because you're like, oh, they it's purple. They're the perfect mood lighting. They should um put bisexual lighting on the highways. They're halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we, we vote to keep the purple lights. Keep In the fact, purple. Increase them. Please. Every light should be purple. Anyway, moving on. I have another story from Rhode Island that also has to do with chickens. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I couldn't believe it. So this story is a little bit shorter, but it's just as wholesome. It has to do with parents buying their two young daughters who are in, like seven and nine, I think. I don't remember the exact ages. They bought them some chickens. They specifically bought them female chickens. And they specifically bought breeds that are good with children, which I like didn't know was a thing. But I guess there's some breeds of chicken that are nicer than others. I don't know. So these parents bought their two daughters some chickens. And the daughters like love these chickens. They bought them when they were chicks. So they like grew up in their house and then they moved them outside. I think there's like four of them or something. And then the girls were like, oh, we want to take these chickens on walks because they're children. And so they asked their mom, can you buy us some chicken leashes? Which I guess are a thing. And mom said, no, you have to pay for them yourself. So they opened a lemonade stand and made enough money to buy four chicken leashes. <laughs> and they... <laughs> Really fell in love with one of the chickens, which I feel it's very sweet, but it's like I feel bad for the other chickens because they, you know, have a favorite now. Her name is Brownie. I'm assuming she's brown. Well, no, I know she's brown because I saw a picture of her, but she is a chicken. She's a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they fell in love with this chicken and they take her. They take all of them, but they love her and they take her for walks down the street of their neighborhood. They said they started in the backyard then they moved to the front yard. Now they walk down the street. And so then when the school year started, they were like, mom, we want to take the chicken 
to the bus stop with us every morning because I guess they used to bring the dog with them. And so now they leave the dog behind and they bring the chicken on the chicken leash. And oh, the mom is okay with it because she's like, they like it. They're having fun. The kids on the school bus think it's funny. Like we're, everyone's having a good time. And I think that that's great. And I wish that I had a chicken to bring to the bus stop with me. All the other pets got to feel dejected, though. Yeah, no, like the rest of the chickens are not being paid attention to. The dog now doesn't come to the bus stop with them. I mean, maybe the dog does still go. That doesn't specify whether the dog is left behind now because they have the chicken. I mean, if you're a dog and you're getting one-upped by the chicken, <laughs> you got to be pissed. You got to Yeah, be like so all the kids mad. are losing their mind because there's, there's a chicken. They don't care about the dog. Yeah, this says um, usually they would bring their dog, but they wanted Brownie to send them off to school. The kids every day want to bring something to the bus stop. I think it's hilarious. They're such funny kids, and I think Brownie and this whole chicken on a leash thing just fits right into their personalities and what they love to do t together. Major demotion for the dog. Though. Yeah, for real. <laughs> I like how their mom referred to it as this whole chicken on a leash thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, kids and their chicken on a leash phase. <laughs> One of the girls said... Um, when they first saw the chicken, all the boys and girls in the back were standing up and they kept looking at the chicken because it was so funny how the chicken had a leash walking down the street. I felt really happy because I think Brownie really enjoyed it because she got to see a new thing. <laughs> and then the daughter then says again, Brownie is very sweet to us, so we want to be sweet to her by taking her on walks, taking her to new places. Well, we've established the uh, sub-theme of this episode, which is friendship with chickens chicken companionship yeah and it's good and everyone should have chickens if you can chicken companionship and faulty roadways <laughs> <laughs> so moving on from those themes now we have a short story from massachusetts so massachusetts is pretty well known as a hotbed for academia boston specifically is host to quite a few world-renowned universities and colleges so the Nobel Prizes were recently announced. And if you don't know, there are six Nobel Prizes in the following subjects. There's the prize in physics, chemistry, physiology and medicine, literature, the peace prize, and then finally the economic sciences prize. So this year in the 2023 Nobel Prizes, half of the prizes were given to people from Massachusetts. Whoa. Two of which are from the Boston area, the other from Lexington, Massachusetts. And they were awarded the following. The Harvard economist Claudia Golden won this year's economics prize for her research in women in the workplace. The MIT scientist Mungi Bowendi was a part of a team of three that won the chemistry prize for their research in quantum dots, whatever the fuck those are. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Lexington native... Drew Weissman, one with another researcher for their work in mRNA vaccines, which helped the development of the COVID-19 vaccinations. So that is three. That is half of the awards given to at least a member of the team that were recipients of the Nobel Prize this year, which is pretty insane when you think about it. Do the other people on the teams also get the prizes? Yes. Okay. Okay. I was like, that would be so unfair. Yeah, no, two of the <laughs> people who won these prizes were part of teams that won them. Got it. I mean, still, for th half of the prizes to have been awarded to people from Massachusetts is insane, especially because this isn't a national prize. This is worldwide. Yeah, that is huge. This is given to people huge. from across the planet. So for three of them to be given to Massachusetts natives 
is pretty insane. I guess mass is on top right now. It, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that has to be the highest concentration of anyone, like you know, in in the world getting Nobel prizes. Like that's yeah. crazy. Damn. So I don't actually have a third story. I kind of faked this third story to fit in with the rest of my theme of chickens by searching New Hampshire chicken news because I wanted <laughs> to see if I could find one. And this one is a very, very long article from uh, September. So not that far in the past, obviously. I didn't really feel like going really, really in depth with this one because it just felt like a fun headline to just read aloud. I'm excited now. What is it? Manchester, New Hampshire is the chicken tender capital of the world. Chicken tender capital of the universe. Manchester, New Hampshire, this one's for you. That's it. That's all I have to say. But yeah, there's 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 a whole like history that this article goes down into a rabbit hole, which I didn't want to get into because I already had two other news stories this week. But like a historical rabbit hole of why chicken tenders are like so big in New Hampshire. I think that there's the, like this one specific restaurant that it focuses on. But there is another headline, like one of the headers in the article, that does say "Welcome to Tender Town," which I think oh is really God. good. Um, Tender and Town a- <laughs> also sounds like the world's best name for a gay bar. Let it be known. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But yeah, the restaurant's called the Puritan Back Room, which interesting is a really strange name for a restaurant. But yeah, it's another really good name for a gay bar, though. Yeah. But yeah, they they claim that they invented chicken tenders, so that's where that oh. comes from. Yeah. Oh wait, that's a that's a pretty large claim to make. Yeah. Um. This Damn. has been for like over a hundred years that this restaurant has existed and quote unquote been making them. I guess. I I just feel as if that can't possibly be true. Yeah. Because I imagine chicken tenders are one of those things that has been invented five or six times along different cultures. Oh yeah. It's a pretty obvious thing to make, honestly. Yeah, it's just like bread some chicken and see what happens. Right. It's like we put breaded things on other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I I need to see some documentation to back up that claim. That's that's too great of a claim. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not about to do the research, so <laughs> even though that's maybe supposed to be time. my job. <laughs> yeah, maybe next time I'll do some research. I just didn't want to get too into it because I knew that it would lead me down like an insane rabbit hole. We'll leave the chicken tender rabbit hole for next episode. Okay. So, speaking of which... What? (laughs) Speaking of holes... (laughs) (laughs) My last story is a little bit of a spooky one for spooky season. All right. So, in Roxbury, Vermont, they have opened a forest conservation cemetery. What that entails is that, unlike most cemeteries with grave markers and with dead people like six feet below the dirt they instead bury people at like a foot below and in biodegradable coffins 
and they don't have any markers. They just have like a map that shows where people are. And you can bring things for your deceased loved ones, like flowers or rocks or something, to, something organic to put over the area. But that is it. Interesting. The idea here is to have a cemetery with the least amount of a carbon footprint or with the least amount of disturbance to nature as possible. So plenty of people have already elected to be put in this woods, this section of the woods that has been opened recently. This is the first cemetery of this type in this area. I'd want to double check, but I'd be willing to make the leap to say that this might be the first in New England. Yeah, I mean, I've never heard of that before. This is a first for me to hear of. So Yeah, it's it's a pretty new practice. Uh, I think one of the parts here that is most interesting is that they're burying the remains of these people at only about a foot deep, and they don't do any sort of preservation. They don't do any of the formaldehyde or anything because that's like a known carcinogen. Yeah. I don't know so, how I feel about this, honestly. It's for those who want to be sort of brought back into the cycle of nature as quickly as physically possible. Fair enough. By not putting someone like six feet below, they're actually going to be in like the live part of the soil. Thus, the decomposition process and everything is going to happen quicker. Sorry if anyone's eating lunch. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like the reason that we bury people so deep underground, I mean, besides all of like, I don't know. I mean, the scientific or just like realistic reason is so that they don't get dug up. No, if they, if they get dug up by like dogs or something, that's part of it. You know, <laughs> have at it, dogs. <laughs> that's horrible. You know, like it, like they're way more <laughs> likely to get dug up by an animal or for the weather to cause them to, you know, the the topsoil or whatever to get washed away and for once again them to be just exposed to the outside which i guess what is this like a whole closed off area that's like dedicated to this i mean i guess that's fine i just i'm very i don't know that's it's nature man if you just wash up somewhere if like a mountain lion digs you out it is what it is (laughs) that's a circle life baby i yeah i don't know (laughs) i also am someone who's like oh I I like the aspect of a cemetery with having some sort of marker for like where you are because otherwise it's just like, okay, I have this square of grass. How do I actually, I know that they said that they give you a map, but what if they like got confused and like mixed two people? Like what? Like, I mean, obviously that's not going to happen probably. I don't know. I like the aspect of being able to go to a cemetery and visit your loved ones. And there's some sort of like monument for them. That's, just me but i guess if you don't care that's fine too yeah i totally empathize with both sides i totally understand why someone would want a more conventional burial for a loved one or themselves i also get why yeah why someone would choose this and yeah one aspect of the article that i enjoyed was them saying that you know conventional burial has turned into sort of like manicuring lawns as if it's a golf course and it isn't something that's like going to be able to be possible forever because at a certain point you just run out of space for all these dead people yes i mean that has (laughs) already been proven that has already happened yeah Um, at some point we just got to be chucking them somewhere (laughs) (laughs) 
I do like the like more recent phenomenon of people getting turned into like seeds. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, this is this is that in a way. Yeah, I do like like the base of a tree. Yeah. And then the roots and whatnot can take advantage of your various minerals and liquids. I don't like that. (laughs) <laughs> sorry the way you said that made me uncomfortable um do you not no. want me to talk about our various minerals and liquids <laughs> not particularly but no i like the concept of being able to be turned into some sort of seed and like planted and then now you are a tree that will hopefully live for a hundred years or something a tree that will outlive whoever you lived with in your lifetime kind of situation you know what i mean yeah i mean that's also a risky game to play i guess technically I mean, I guess you wouldn't be able to be knocked down if you're a person tree. Honestly, for me, you can just take me when I'm done with me <laughs> and just throw me in the mountain lion exhibit at like a zoo or something. <laughs> just take me when I'm done with me. <laughs> just just chuck me in with the mountain lions. They can, <laughs> they can have me. <laughs> I don't want that. I don't know what I want yet. I haven't figured it out. No rush. However, I did learn that that caskets are like $4,000 minimum, which is insane. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Once again, the mountain lion experience <laughs> is is very, it's very thrifty, <laughs> if anything. <laughs> like, I don't think that anyone in my family single-handedly has spent... Okay, well, that's a lie. Like, my dad has supported me in my life, obviously. He's my father, so he's definitely spent that much money on me over time. But, I mean, at once, no one I know has ever spent $4,000 on me. At one time. Like, that's a lot of money, and I'm not even alive anymore. Like, it sounds like you're getting thrown in with the mountain lions, too, Sarah. (laughs) Probably. But I feel like most people have that shared experience with me, unless their parents are like rich and bought them a car when they were 16, which is not what happened to me. If that did happen to you, I'm jealous. But some people had to work at Goodwill for two years to be able to afford their first car. <laughs> well, some people were given a car by their parents, and then late one night they were going down Kingston, Massachusetts, <laughs> and uh, ran into a boulder, <laughs> totaled it all at once. Then what? <laughs> then I guess they're getting thrown with the mountain lions. <laughs> <laughs> As we all must. <laughs> My only ask, my only request is make sure I'm not alive when you do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's Double check. (laughs) Anyways, that's all I have in the in the spooky story department. (laughs) Well, I think that that is a great story. And I think that if you want to be buried that way, you can go for it. And I will have nothing to do with it. Yeah. Unless I guess you're my friend and you want me to be at the funeral. I mean, I guess you wouldn't invite me to the funeral. I would just show up. Because you would be dead. Listen, if you invite me to your funeral and this is what you do, I will bring a really, really nice rock for your spot. <laughs> it will be one foot by one foot. <laughs> anyway. Anyways. <laughs> Moving on. So this is a great time for us to talk about Pink Navel and our upcoming interview. So, yeah, we had the absolute pleasure of getting to speak to Pink Navel. If you don't know, Pink Navel is one of the premier rapper-producers of New England. They have some incredible albums out now that you should go check out if you don't know their work. We're lucky enough to get to speak to them right before they have a new record coming out, a collaborative project with the producer Kenny Siegel. It comes out October 20th, and it's titled How to Capture Playful. I can say from experience, having seen them perform a couple of times at the University of Hartford, that... 
They're a fantastic artist and musician, and I feel very lucky to have gotten the chance to ask them a couple of questions. Anything more to add, Sarah? I've also always enjoyed seeing Pignable perform live, both at UHart, as Connor said, and also at my old house that I lived at that hosted shows. They're just a great person with a lot of energy, and their performances are really awesome. So definitely go check them out if you haven't, and I hope you enjoyed this interview. You are now on the new New Englanders hotline. First of all, super stoked to have you on this and that you're like down yes, to do it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, thanks for asking. I think it's a, it's a cool idea for a project. So I dig it. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, both of us, you know, had history with like college radio. So it was kind of like the continuation of that was to create a podcast and we both live in New England. So we figured let's just make a New England themed podcast where we just talk to people and about stuff that we care about. That's beautiful. Hell yeah. Yeah, it was kind of our broadest overlap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. That is so cool. You probably remember the station that we were with as well. It was WSAM at the University of Hartford, and you've played the Live from the Lawn Festival a couple of times. Yeah, that festival, both times I played it, was pretty like instrumental moments in my time as a musician which is wow. so fascinating. Yeah. But yeah. That's awesome to hear that. <laughs> yeah. The first time was the first time I met open Mike Eagle. And, um, the second time I played it last year, I connected with the band, another Michael. And I'm like really inspired by them. It just, in terms of songwriting. So I, yeah, I like think that that's also very instrumental, but Meeting Mike was also very huge. It was like a big moment. It was cool. Both amazing musicians yeah. and amazing Michaels. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Another Michael was great last time they played live there. So good. Yeah. If you want to give us, you know, a little introduction to yourself and just kind of speak on when, where, and how you got started in music, that would be awesome. Yeah, for sure. Um, my name is Dev. I make music as Pink Naval. I'm from the South Shore of Massachusetts in an area called Plymouth County. So it's like really close to where the Pilgrims landed and started (laughs) doing, you know, the stuff that became like modern America. And I sort of came up in the DIY scene here in New England, playing a lot of shows, kind of like up and down the coast. And, uh, I'd say I have a very, like, unique approach to rap and, like, being a rapper. And that manifested in my engagement with this very indie rock-dominated scene, Hmm. which is where I, like, found a lot of my support throughout the years. That's what I would say, that's how I would introduce myself into how it relates to the concept of this podcast. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. So jumping right into your upcoming album, you have a record coming out with Kenny Siegel, a collaborative project that's releasing October 20th. Kenny Siegel being another sort of legendary DIY producer in this scene. I was wondering what maybe your favorite part of making the record was or what just your favorite part of working with Kenny in general might have been. Um, 
I think the best part was just having another brain in the room and then having such a creative and inspiring, you know, person in the room. Um, I've made all the records I've done pretty much solo, you know, collaborating on tracks with people, but never like a whole project. So getting some directive from Kenny or direction rather in different aspects of like song structure and songwriting and like narrative across like the record as a whole was really interesting and fun. And it got me out of my comfort zone creatively a lot. And I think it goes to show on the record, like a lot of the stuff that I'm doing um, is new for me and just, yeah, not something I've ever done before. So it was very cool to get to explore that in a space with somebody who um, has so much experience and so much like wisdom in terms of like the very specific type of rap music that we're like working towards and like creating. Yeah. So that was definitely my favorite part was getting to yeah collaborate with someone who's just so instrumental to this scene as a whole. That was great. That's awesome. Without giving anything away about the album, what are you most excited to like share with people? I think the record, when I've been talking to it, talking about it to people, I keep saying it's like about video games without elaborating too much. <laughs> and it is. I've always been a big fan of like nerdcore rappers like Mega Ran and Samus. But I think what I wanted to do was make a record that's about video games doesn't necessarily sound like it is about that like there's not there's not much like chiptune or 8-bit stuff going on sonically mm. and um as opposed to for the most part as opposed to being about just sort of like the content and the culture of games it's more about like how we as people interact with the video game sort of like i guess culture but also like how video games interact with just like the human sort of routine of life and how we integrate playing video games and just play in general into our daily lives and um, how it relates to work and how those two things differ is kind of like what's explored and I'm really proud of like the the ideas and the and how we illustrate these concepts. I'm really like, proud of how it is expressed. That's awesome. Word. Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. So I wanted to ask specifically about the first single from the album that we've had a chance to hear, a song called Present Vendor, which is largely about Beetle, a character, the sort of merchant character from the Legend of Zelda series. And I wanted to ask you whether you have a personal relationship with that series and if there was some sort of influence from that series in this album. I don't know. That song specifically actually came to fruition because I had written a different verse for that beat that was very just like about nothing specific. And Kenny suggested that we tried to do something that's more like narrative uh, and I was like, okay, well, like, what would be an interesting sort of, like, narrative approach to this? 
and I've always loved Beetle as a character. I think he's funny. <laughs> I think it's I think it's cool that Zelda is one of these series where like all the games are different but the same. Like it's not very clear if like Link is the same Link in each game. <laughs> yeah. And I I like how it extends to the other characters. Like how how uh, um what's his name Tingle is in a lot of the games, but Tingle <laughs> is like. Like, is it the same guy? And Beatles the same way. Like, Beatles in Wind Waker, Beatles in some of the DS games. And I think with Breath of the Wild coming out and his, uh, the way he's used in that game, I think it became so iconic because his, like, design is so striking for the first time. Like, in Wind Waker, he's just a guy on a boat, but his name is Beetle, but for no reason, kind of. Like, his name is just Beetle. But in Breath of the Wild and in Tears of the Kingdom, he has this like backpack that like makes him look like a beetle, which I was like, oh, like I feel like, you know, it can take a long time for an idea to be fully utilized. And I think it was cool that they like don't abandon these characters when things don't like hit the mark the first time. Yeah, yeah. I love Beetle also. <laughs> he's so cool. I love, I love that song and that video. <laughs> Yeah, he's cool. And then I just started thinking about like, you know, side characters and sort of people who aren't the protagonist and how they aid in like, you know, the the overall quest at hand, if you will. Right, um, right. Yeah, and there are a lot of great there are a lot of great characters like that. So I think it was just fun to think about that. And yeah, I guess I don't know. There's no specific attachment to the game for either of us but i thought i think it's more of an attachment to that character and the idea of support in general yeah i think that side characters are really integral to a lot of video games and like i think about that a lot whenever i'm playing anything um any of the non main quote unquote main characters and like the role they play in your gameplay is really important yeah and it can be so cool to see how different games sort of like explore that. I love it. I love I love a game where the side characters are like a part of the journey as much as you are the player. And I love when they change and I love when they like pop up in different places and I feel like Zelda is like really good at that specifically. S- yes. Like super more than good. just Beetle, like there's like other characters that will pop up and are recurring and I don't know. I think that it's fun. Ditto. It's just so cool when that happens. What is uh what is your favorite Zelda game? If you got one. Oof. Probably Wind Waker, just because of how unique it is. And like the history of Wind Waker is so cool. Before it came out, there was no Zelda game for the GameCube, and everybody was like, oh, we can't wait for the Zelda game to come out for this console. It's gonna be crazy because this this thing is so powerful and it's gonna make a great game. <laughs> And at E3, they showed a tech demo um, that inc- for the GameCube that included some footage of like a realistic Zelda fighting a realistic Ganondorf. And everybody was like, whoa, like this is going to be crazy. <laughs> like it's going to look like so good. Like, oh my God. And then like six months later, they're, they put out Wind Waker and everybody was p- 
pissed. Like the <laughs> forums, everyone was like, "This, like, what is this baby cartoon game? Like, what's going on?" Wow. So it it, it wasn't received well when it first came out, but then with time, people grew to you know now it's viewed as one of the best or yeah. like the better zelda games like people love it and hey they still got their realistic one a couple years later <laughs> so it was fine but i think it's just i think it's just interesting to like see how you know people can come around a little bit on stuff and and when a company experiments in it and and kind of like has to win over the trust of their fan base again is is cool so i like the game for that reason yeah that's so funny. I, yeah, I've never heard that. And it's it's funny to hear that because it's such a interesting aesthetic for the game. And I know it's so well remembered in, in this moment that everybody loves the way that game looked. So it's yeah. funny to hear that it was such a problem initially. Well, I think the culture of video games has shifted a little bit because sort of like pre-1080p era pre like hd stuff like everybody was chasing that like hyper real yeah and then i think when we got to it in the ps3 xbox 360 era when things started to kind of leave the uncanny valley and look better and then like moving into like the modern era where they can make a game that looks like you know a fucking movie um i think people have gotten really tired of of the realistic look and they want to see more experimentation visually. Um, which is great, but I think it's interesting. You know, you, we always want the thing that's not in the forefront a little bit. Yeah. With stuff like that. Yeah. So moving back to a more music specific question. So you like a lot of musicians in the DIY scene, specifically for hip hop and electronic music. You use, uh, a sort of cult classic piece of hardware, that being the Roland SP404. I was hoping to ask you, how did you land on the 404 as this like important piece of your live show and your sort of approach to music production in general? I kind of see it as tradition. It It's a box that predates sort of like all of us in a way. Mm. Um, you know... Uh, Mad Lib made most of Mad Villainy on an SP-303. You right. know, like... So just thinking about that and thinking about how it's in the background been such a fundamental piece of gear and then going into the early 2010s with, like, low-end theory and DiBiase and Ross G and how they used it for performance um, over there. How it's always been this tool that streamlines electronic performance in a way that is unprecedented for its time so like before that you would need you know the huge expensive new mark cdj setup with the two turntables <laughs> and the computer and the mixer and then before that you would need your rolodex of you know cds or vinyl and the real turntables and it was just more of a production. And that was always, I mean, it's that's obviously cool and like exciting to see that stuff done very well. But I think in the same way that it's cool to see a rock band have these huge cabs and be super big and loud, 
it's also cool to see a guitarist just like play an acoustic guitar somewhere outside and be able to sort of create music more spontaneously. Mm. And yeah. that's what the 404 allows because of its portability and its like low profile. And I think that's sort of like the core of why it has became so iconic is because it's so easy to bring everything that you would need to perform with in a very small footprint. Yeah, and I think that's why you see it a lot, especially in DIY, because it's not exactly the most expensive. I mean, it's it's about as much as you would buy, like, it's, it's about as much as what, like, a Fender Telecaster would cost, <laughs> for example. <Yeah. laughs> you, know, you know, so it, I, I, I do find it very comparable in that way, that it's just, it's, it's very, it's very accessible and it's very, um, it's very convenient. And that's part of the reason why it's became such, such a popular and iconic piece of gear for, for so many people over the years. Yeah. Part of what I love about listening to your live records is that it is like such a prominent sound in them, just the same way that it is for your live performances. Like I love hearing an epic, those, you know, those stutter effects and everything across it. And yeah. it has such an like sort of iconic sound. And when paired with your style of production, it just, it clicks in a way that's really interesting. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, um, Especially with Epic, that was such a production. That one I used two 404s uh, kind of back to back. <laughs> and all of the dialogue samples and TikTok samples, I'm like launching in real time on a second 404. <laughs> um, and then like the backing tracks are on the other one. And they're chained together so I can affect both of them. But, wow. Do you think you'll ever add a third 404 to the set? <laughs> <laughs> that was the one time I ever did the two. And then I played like a few shows with two. And I was like, this is too, I'm, it's too much. It's too much <laughs> stuff. Um, That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So for our listeners who may not know, um, what is Ruby Yacht and how did you get involved with them? Yeah. Rubiot is a record label, it is a rap crew, and it's a family of people that I sort of became acquainted with in as early as like 2013, I think is when I met oh, wow. is when I met Rory who founded Rubiot. Yeah. And that is kind of like the inciting incident of how I sort of decided to start rapping in general. And then okay. I just did a lot of stuff, made a lot of music. And then five years later, I joined the crew and I've been touring with them and making music with them and being a member of this group for a long time. And there's a bunch of members. We make records together. We travel together. We work together. And I don't know. I, I don't know. It's just this like amazing sort of like collective where the thing that ties us all together is sort of our approach to artistry and our ethos of like all of this is ours there's no hmm. there's no like like bigger group of suits yeah sort of like looming over right. rubia <laughs> like we are just like it's just us 
you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think that's what, like, brings us all together in just this, like, unwavering zeal focused on creativity and independence in the rap world and in the art world at large. Awesome. Yeah. I feel like I've like known about Rubyot for a while now, probably like around since the first time you played live from the lawn at Uheart. Cause like when I started to hear about it, that's right when I joined. Okay. Yeah. That's what yeah. I thought. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I like had that in the back of my mind. And I was like, I feel like that was like around that time. Yeah. And that was how I met Mike because, and it's so, I have to tell the story because it was, it's, it was such a, it was such a G moment for me. Like, <laughs> so I played like way earlier in the day and then I stayed all day and watched everybody and was having fun. And Mike comes on like a golf cart <laughs> driven by a volunteer from the show and then comes up and plays it's my first time seeing mike perform no that's a lie i saw mike play in boston one time so my so maybe my second time seeing him perform and then and i was just like i'm such a big fan of his music and even to this day every time i see him i'm still kind of like nervous <laughs> but i like i love him so much and i love his work and and what he's done for the art rap scene at large. Right. Yeah. And so I was just like super enthusiastic and then he finishes and that I was like, okay, I saw open Mike Eagle. I can leave. So I go, I'm going to grab my gear and he had just finished playing and all these people are trying to talk to him. Cause it was like, we, we were all just in this big lawn. So it wasn't like yeah. a venue where you could kind of like sneak away. So he's like trying to get out of there. And I'm going to grab my gear and all these people are talking to him and he sees me pick up my gear and he goes, Oh, you, did you, did you play today? And I was like, yeah, I did. And he was, he was like, what's your name? And I said, pink navel. And he's looking at me like he's trying to figure out how he knows who I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'm in Rory's crew. I'm in, I'm in Rubiot. And he was like, oh, you should have just said you were family. And he gave me a hug. <laughs> oh, my God. And then he left on the golf cart and didn't, <laughs> talk, and, <laughs> and didn't talk to anybody else. <laughs> it was so sick. Um, yeah, it was so cool. And I, I, that, like, kept me going for months. I was like, yeah. Like this, this moment That's was so awesome. empowering. Yeah, it was so sick. Beautiful. Yeah. Love the image of the golf cart involved. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> I don't know where he was, but I mean, I'm sure he was in some like classroom as a green room. Yeah, whatever, we but... had we had like green rooms set up that were like really shitty because we were college students <laughs> and didn't have a lot of money. But we had a green room for him. <laughs> yeah, no, that was cool. It was so sick. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So on the topic of inspiring musicians, do you have any specifically New England artists that you find inspiring or maybe just performers who you think are really great? Yeah, I think the person I'd want to shout out in this moment is uh, definitely Mal DeVisa. Awesome. Uh, yeah, huge, huge fan of her work and 
and her dedication to like being an artist in this world. Um, definitely, in my opinion, like a Massachusetts legend. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, <laughs> absolute legend. Um, I just, I just, we just played a festival together, so I saw her play, and it was just like so cool. I've only um, ever seen her once, but it was like an amazing experience. Yeah, yeah, so sick. Definitely Maldivisa. Uh, you know, different genre for sure, but just like the through lines of of like being being a songwriter. And I think there are things about a lot of our work that are evocative of this like New England like grit. I think that we're I think that all of us here are very mm. not I, I don't want to say like tough. I feel like that's like not very descriptive of what I'm trying to express, but like like we can't be stopped in what we're trying <laughs> what we're trying to do. Like you know, and I think I see that a lot in, in um in Maldivisa's work, which is which is which is great. I think you're really touching on an idea that uh, was one of our inspirations for even doing this podcast, which is that the, one of the funny things about New England is that unlike uh, being in New York City or something, organizing and making art happen and making shows happen, you're kind of like working against the grain. So the people who are doing these things all have like such a vigor and such, they put in so much effort and it's, yeah. it's so admirable to see that because it, it, it's not like given to anybody in new England, especially when you're doing something that is outside of normal convention as far as like your work. And uh, uh, yeah, it's, I think that's what has always inspired Sarah and I about just the artists, the scenes around new England is that there's just so much like heart and passion that has to go in it just for it to even exist in the first place. It's so true. Like, it's like there's so much great music that comes out of this region of the world and it takes so much effort to make it happen. Just like you said, where, you know, in, in places where you see people move to, to do stuff like this, like New York and LA, there's so much more infrastructure for art to happen yeah. in like, you know, a quote unquote, like, valid or like a verified space or right you know, there's there's more venues there's more studios there's more everything in those places and i think part part of like this like new england pride i feel is like not leaving you know i think i think that's like a big choice that a lot of artists have to like make is like oh do i go mm. away yeah. and become a transplant or do I stick it out here and like make it happen here? And, and, and I, th I think it's always, you know, more fulfilling when you're, when you're able to do something for your city, which, you know, in rap culture is a big thing where like you, this like city pride that I think, yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of rappers can like relate to. Something I find funny about New England, I've had this conversation with um, Sam Naz, actually, is that like people from here will leave and they'll go to New York or they'll go to California or wherever. And for some reason, they always end up coming back. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, I mean, like I know people who've left and like stayed where they are, but for the most part, everyone I know that's ever moved or gone somewhere else for college or something has come back. And I think that that's very 
I don't know, it says a lot about the place here. And like talking about people's grit and like going against the grain and, you know, really having to put in an effort to make a scene work. At least in Connecticut, we lost like basically all of the DIY spaces after COVID mm. just because no shows were happening. Nobody could pay rent. Yeah. And like seeing that even still like struggling to come back, especially because two of our major venues like got shut down within the last year, the State House and the Wallingford American Legion. It's like really sucks to see, you know, I can't just like go on Instagram and find a show that's happening on any given day and go to it. But people are working, you know? Yeah, it's first. I, first, I want to say rip the state house that place was yeah <laughs> fucking awesome <laughs> that yeah, venue... got sold to yale Ooh. no <laughs> yeah oh i We're love gonna put state in like luxury apartments or something <laughs> God, that sucks <laughs> <laughs> and yeah i think that speaks to how how high of a volume of house venues mm. there are in this region like have you ever heard of a house show happening in new york city no, no. there's there's always a bar that's gonna let you you know do something there for the right price or whatever the type of person who owns a house in new york city is decidedly not punk rock (laughs) 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 generally the consensus yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah so i think you know there's there's this extra labor involved of like facilitation and not just like creation that i think is special about a lot of cities but you know new england as well you know obviously other places like the midwest ohio and akron with cling thing and and like philly as a whole i think is very much in the same in this same conversation but yeah 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 there's also something to be said about how when you're coming up in in New England, when you're coming up through the DIY scene, not you're never faced with a sort of institutional cosign to like your your path to even like getting spots and shows or anything. Like there, there, like you're saying before, there's not the suits involved with who's going to be playing. <laughs> so you get to hear a lot more interesting stuff. You get to hear a lot more like raw material. Yeah, I think there's way less of like a. A pressure of oh i have to like impress so and so in this moment so true so true it's so interesting to think about and i guess this is what your idea is with your show is how how much of your place um informs how you approach music and art it's cool along that line what's what's your favorite thing about new england in general hmm I think my favorite thing about New England, it's gotta, it's, it's gotta be this like, and I think this is so, maybe it's nostalgic, maybe it's, maybe it's just like, I don't know, a little endearing to me, this very specific brand of like nautical <laughs> appreciation. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Like everybody's mom um, has like a whale painting in their house. I love stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's endearing. I, I, I don't I don't know why. I feel like it's especially more prominent like where you're from, like that area of Massachusetts, because yeah. of its proximity to Cape Cod. 
Yes, absolutely. And growing up, my grandmother lived on a or in a beach house year round. Oh, so, wow. So, and it was always so cool to be there. We'd go there for Christmas. So it would be like a, you know, a real Massachusetts winter, like crazy. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, we're yeah. like at the beach, you know, <laughs> 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 that was always like so, so cool. And then like, you know, stuff with the decor, like right next to the clock, she had a, a clock that showed the tides and just stuff like yeah. that. Like, I don't know. I think I, I think I like how much, um, the coast and the water and, and the fishermen and the sea stuff like has like been ingrained into like new England culture as a whole. I love how like our view of the ocean is so different than like other areas of the country that are coastal, like mm. new England ocean versus like Florida ocean. So like, they true. don't have the same vibes as we do up here. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, they have totally different beaches, but like even just like the way that they view the ocean is different. Absolutely. I think the only place that's comparable is like Seattle, you know, yes. it's just like the other end of it where like the, the water and the ocean is viewed so much as a resource. I think so much of like what we export here is from the water. I lived in Maine for four years, so I saw a lot of that in Maine as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, for our final question that we have for you, this is a very New England coded question, but in your most recent music video that you just dropped this past week for your second and final single before the album comes out called Memory Card, you go to Dunkin'. And I want to ask you, what is your average Dunkin' order? I have the most utilitarian Dunkin' order. Let's hear it. <laughs> it's just medium, cold brew, black. All right. <laughs> wow. All it's just all, like, no frills. I don't want... I've experimented with the cold foam. I, I haven't even gotten that there yet. I'm The cold foam at Dunkin' is not as good as the cold foam at Starbucks, unfortunately. Ooh. Hot um, take or cold take. But I, I will say shout out to Charlie D'Amelio for introducing cold foam because <laughs> the first the first cold foam drink at Dunkin' was the was the, um, yeah. the Charlie was the Charlie collab. <laughs> so it's really her doing that got this in got this in there. Um but no, cold brew black. But I want to add to that that I had a friend once tell me that black coffee is technically not as caffeine. Like the caff, how you intake the caffeine is different than when you have a dairy. What? Yes. So when I you drink, how, I don't know how to believe that. <laughs> what I was told, believe it or not, I don't know if I believe this or not, but. When you drink a black coffee, you're getting all the caffeine at one time. Like, it's mm. all there. But when you have this, like, fatty dairy or, you know, oat milk or almond milk or whatever, this other element acts as, like, a, a gate to the caffeine that will, like, slow down it being released into your body. Oh, interesting. Okay, I could like see how that could huh. be possible. 
Right. I feel like I got to do some like scientific research on this though. Mm. Cause that'll like change my, cause I drink black coffee every single day. Yeah, um, same. I mean, when I go to Dunkin', I tend to get like cream and sugar in my iced coffee just because I don't know. I just do. It's just, I don't know. I don't know why I do, mm. but anywhere else I usually just get like black hot coffee. Um, but maybe yeah. I'm gonna have to change my ways. I feel like caffeine doesn't really affect me as much as it used to anymore either, because I drink so much of it. But same at my job, we have cold brew on tap. Ooh! So it's just like danger. A constant. It's just a constant <laughs> in my life. It's it's. After yeah. working in a coffee shop and the amount of just straight espresso I consumed, I think I have like there's like a high tolerance. <laughs> I was going to say that I used to work at a Dunkin' when I was in, uh, like right after I graduated high school, worked at Dunkin' for a Whoa. summer. Yeah. I was just going to say it was interesting. From everyone I know that's worked at a Dunkin', they've had an interesting experience with it. <laughs> it it's like, definitely, I, yeah. I feel like all coffee shops, you are sort of interfacing with people when they might be at their worst moment of the day. <laughs> yeah absolutely i think at like we get so many people like when you make a mistake on someone's coffee it's it's a lot it's a it can there can be some wrath yeah no you know for sure (laughs) (laughs) they can get really scary yeah (laughs) but yeah very interesting job i think the detail that i find most fascinating is that you are not referred to in any official documentation as a barista. Like you, in terms oh. of just definition, you are not a barista when you work at Duncan. You were just like a Duncan employee. Like a retail employee? Yeah. Or something? Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Interesting. What do they consider you if not a barista? Just a coffee like- seller. door-to-door salesperson of dunkin donuts right exactly <laughs> uh, well cool well thank you so much for joining us and answering our music and funny questions putting up with them yeah this was so this was so fun i really enjoyed it i i would be remiss to not to do this whole thing and not give a shout out to Dennis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> so shout out. So shout out Dennis. Classic yeah, rest, house. Rest venue. in peace. Yeah. Another RIP. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much again. Um, if you want to give like a final plug of, you know, your socials and where to find your music. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, just uh, Google Pink Navel to find my socials. They're different, so I don't. I, I, that's like a lot of words. And then Fair. also, um, my new album, How to Capture Playful. It's about video games. It's coming out October twentieth on Rubyot and Alpha Pup, and uh, it's a collaboration with Kenny Siegel, who's a legend. Maybe I'll be a legend. <laughs> Uh, after this, 
<laughs> so yeah, take a listen. In our eyes, you already are a legend. Aw, <laughs> thanks. Let that be known. <laughs> Hell yeah. Y'all are so cool. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. I love this idea for the podcast. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, super cool to just show New England some love and, and, and our great history of like awesome music. It's great. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Pink Naval for joining us. It was a real treat to have them on. Now it's time for us to look at some upcoming events. Let's hear them, Sarah. All right. First up, I got an event that's this coming Saturday um, on October 21st at Plush, which is a skate shop slash shoe shop in New Haven. It's at 96 Orange Street, New Haven, Connecticut. From 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., they're hosting a show and tell, quote unquote, which is a Forgotten Flea event. And Forgotten Flea is a kind of traveling flea market situation. Um, So they'll have you know, people selling clothes, vintage stuff. Uh, and specifically this weekend, they're also going to be having somebody selling handmade jewelry and they're going to have pizza and there's going to be a sale on their shoes. And I think that it'll be fun. And I'm going to go because I have friends that are vending and you should too. So I also have a couple of upcoming events and these are Halloween themed because likely this is our last episode before Halloween not 100% sure on that yet. We might have something. But if we don't, we have some Halloween fun things to do. The first of which is Burlington, Vermont on the waterfront. This is Westworld Halloween Ball featuring Liz Cooper, Lily Seabird, and Greg Freeman. This is happening at Foam Brewery in Burlington. And what this is, is they're having a big party where the attendees are recommended to wear either a Wes Anderson-themed costume, a Westworld-themed costume, or some sort of mashup between the two. Interesting. Which I think is a really dumb idea, but in a fun (laughs) way. (laughs) (laughs) Totally bashing their event. I think it'll be fun. No, no, I I think it's ridiculous, but I think it will be a lot of fun for those who can attend. I think that sounds like a great time. It's one of those like hyper specific themes that is like actually gonna is like gonna create some interesting stuff. I actually do have another event that I forgot about until I looked at my calendar. So the Bells and Chimes, which is the women's pinball organization, are hosting two different Rocky Horror pinball shows, quote unquote. These are just pinball tournaments. It's just the name of them. Um, Connecticut Bells is hosting a women's pinball tournament on Sunday, October 22nd, starting at 1 p.m. at the Sanctum in Meriden. Uh, There's a $25 house fee and all the games there are on free play. So once you pay the house fee, like... You're participating in the tournament, but also can play any of the games for free. And the Boston Bells are hosting one on Friday, October 27th, starting at 7 p.m. at Bear Moose Brewing in Everett, Massachusetts. It's a $10 entry fee plus coin drop. Um, these are open to all cis and trans women and non-binary people. It's all skill well- levels are welcome, uh, and they're very fun events. Um, I've done quite a few of the Bells and Chimes events in the past, and if you're interested in pinball... It's definitely a good place to kind of get acquainted with it. Nice. Last up on my recommendations for things to do pre-Halloween is Saturday, October 28th. 
at 6 p.m. in Collinsville, Connecticut, is the beginning of the 30th annual Collinsville Halloween Parade. Woohoo! So, Collinsville is a part of Canton, Connecticut. It's a small town, it's a historic village, and in my humble opinion, it's one of the best places to go in the fall in New England. It feels like, I guess, like being in Stars Hollow. I just love Collinsville a lot, and the Halloween Parade in particular is an incredible event. The night starts at 6 p.m., and the pre-parade antics kick off with an annual screaming procession. There's bands, there's candy, there, then of course there's the parade, and who knows what else. It's just a great place to be right before Halloween. It's just a town that goes extremely hard for Halloween. I recommend it. Connor talking about Halloween reminded me of another Halloween event that's happening also on the 28th of October. Uh, it starts at 10 a.m. It's at Mohegan Sun. And it's the Warren's Seekers of the Supernatural Phantasmacon. Now, I personally have no idea if this is actually cool or not. I've never gone. Apparently, this is a yearly thing or something in the same vein. But I think that it sounds pretty cool. I guess Annabelle will be there. This is the Warren's as in like the Conjuring Warren's, Ed and Lorraine. Right. So I guess you can meet Annabelle, the doll. And I'm sure that that'll be a really long line of people trying to take a picture with her. But they will also have other vendors uh, about things with demonology, ghosts, UFOs, monsters, urban legends, cryptozoology, and so much more. There will be psychic readers and, you know, paranormal investigators there and ghost hunters and things of that nature. So if that is your thing, then you can go to Mohegan. This is actually Friday the 27th and Saturday the 28th. So Friday on the 27th, it I think it might be more of an evening thing. It might be all day. You'd have to double check that. Maybe me and Connor will go to both of these events and tell you how our time was. Maybe. Well, anyways, that's it from us for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed listening. And if you didn't, that sucks. (laughs) If we don't see you again before Halloween, make sure have a spooky time. Uh... Eat lots of candy. But don't eat too much. I had too many candy corns this morning, and I felt really sick afterwards. Why would you eat candy corn in the morning? (laughs) (laughs) They're in a bowl on the table for Halloween, and they were sitting right there. And I ate some.